Hey, good morning. How are you? Doing good? Great. Glad you're here. Uh, hey, give Josh and the crew a, a hand, would you, for leading us in worship? And uh, if you're online, we're glad that you're a part of that experience. We know that as we are dispersed and as we see things uh, continue to drag on in some ways, we want to create an environment where you can worship here or there and stay connected. And so you'll be hearing more about that in days to come. Uh, I, I just want to mention that uh, we have a, a couple with us haven't been with us since the, the beginning of stuff, um, or close to it anyway. Jack and Tina Craig are, are back. And so Jack and Tina Craig are right here. Uh, wave your hands. Um, and uh, give them a hand. You can. Yeah, yeah. You, you might want to clap for them again in a second because they have been through it over the last several months. Some health challenges that, uh, you know, we weren't quite sure what the outcome would be. Uh, but God has blessed you with health, Jack, and a very good uh, caretaker in Tina. And we're grateful that you're at this place and can join us and hang out with us today. So we're, we're very, very thankful. Um, let me say this too. Uh, you know, Josh led us in a prayer. There's some people in our church that have lost loved ones. Um, we have a funeral later in the week for a family who was uh, connected uh, to our church as well. Um, it's a very difficult time to deal with grief and stress. And here's what you can do. Do you know somebody who's in the school system right now teaching? Uh, would you just text them and let them know that you're praying for them? Would you reach out to them and encourage them in unique ways? Do you know somebody who works in healthcare? Uh, do the same. And I bet if you just say, Lord, uh, would you guide me, direct me to the friends that need a little bit of encouragement? Just This is what God does. He'll just bring a name to mind for you. And, uh, and then you can do that. You can send a text. You, you, do you know what uh, unsolicited text of kindness, support, love, or prayer means to somebody? And you, God can use you to do that. And he will. Um, all you have to do is listen, and he'll, he'll direct you down that path. And so I hope you'll do that, and I hope you will encourage some people to do that. Um, we have a new series kicking off this week, and it'll last all the way right up to Christmas. So th this month, next couple of months, right through Thanksgiving. It's called Follower. And if you know Chris McKeever, uh, husband to Diana McKeever, who you might know more readily uh, over our children's ministry, he, he did our artwork for us for the series and created it all himself. It looks great. He, this is his job, his day job. And so we love the artwork. It's called Follower. And we're going to begin with this verse so you can get a grasp of kind of where we're headed. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. It's the first time we're introduced to these two characters. We can call them characters because they are. And they're these two dudes that became disciples. And Matthew in chapter 4 begins to give us sort of an origin story of some disciples. These were followers of Jesus. All of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have some details about these people, not just men, but men and women, people that follow Jesus. And Matthew begins to unpack that story by telling us about Simon called Peter, who we know him as Peter more, more commonly. And he had a brother, his name was Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. That's what they did. You maybe know the story. If you were here a few weeks ago, Mark Havercate showed a clip from The Chosen. Maybe you've watched some of The Chosen that sort of gives us a, uh, you know, an idea of what that account might have looked like. Then Matthew goes on to say this, come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and what? And followed him. 
13 times in the Gospels, Jesus gave this sort of uh, direction, follow me to various people. And when he did so, uh, there were a variety of reactions. Some, they, they just kind of followed and just left what they had and decided to head that direction. But that's not all the uh, response. It's some people said no, and some people went away. Some people chose a different path. This is a bit of the understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. We just got done reading the Gospels, uh, our reading group here in the church as we read through Scripture. We just finished reading uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John consecutively, a little bit each day, and commenting through the Bible app. And, and as I read the stories of Jesus, as I read the stories of the disciples, um, there were several things that jumped out at me, but a few observations that are worth mentioning today that we'll spend just a little bit of time on trying to set the stage for where we're headed for this series. When you understand this relationship between Jesus and his disciples, and when you read the gospel accounts, it's pretty clear that the gospel story isn't really about Peter, it's not about Matthew, it's not about James, it's not about John, but their stories are in there. And we get to see the relationship between them and Jesus. And we see, at least at some points, ourselves in them because you too, probably, more than likely, at least considering it, or maybe have been on the path for a long time, have been a follower, are a follower of, of Jesus. And so when we see these followers of Jesus interact with him, some things become very obvious and we can learn something about ourselves and each other. And this was the first thing that occurred to me when I read the Gospels through over the last few months. Jesus seems to go out of his way to invite people who are very different from each other. Now, you can look around the room and decide that, well, that's obvious just by who's here. Maybe you know some people or what they think or how they live or how they believe, but let's just stick with the gospel account for a moment. And it's pretty clear that he seems, I don't know if he did or not, I don't, maybe he didn't go out of his way, it just happened, but I have a feeling it was on purpose. He seems to go out of his way to invite people who are incredibly different from each other. I mean, you've got Simon the Zealot. You don't even have to know what a zealot is to understand what that means. You know what the word zeal means. And this was Simon. Simon was zealous about his faith and his commitment and seeing the kingdom of God restored. And he was all about it. And so he's the kind of guy that you meet who's a, what we call today a fanatic. And he was all in, sold out completely. And Jesus invites him to be a part of his group. And then he also invites this sort of guy that seems to halfway do everything except for his own interests, Matthew, the tax collector. I mean, he was Jewish, but, you know, not really. Nobody accepted him in Jewish circles because his deal was to figure out how to benefit his own bank account through his job and through pilfering from his fellow Jewish friends and neighbors and family. And Jesus takes these two people and he puts them in the same room and says, let's go together. I mean, these are two people that wouldn't even eat lunch together, let alone work on the same project or grab the same rope and pull it in the same direction. And this is true of almost all of the disciples. All the people that follow Jesus, they seem to be almost diametrically opposed. You've got Mary Magdalene who had a past. She had some sin. We don't know what it was. We have an idea. Scripture infers that her past had a very colorful nature to it. But she's suddenly hooked up with a couple other people, Mary and Martha, who were devout Jews, brothers, brother and sister, Lazarus, their whole family. And Mary, of course, just dutiful, 
worshipful of Jesus, Martha, busy as she can be, and they walk together. You don't even have to know scripture to know kind of the headlines about the disciples. There was Thomas the what? Thomas the doubter. It's what we know about Thomas. Well, he was a doubter. Put him next to Simon the zealot. You got Peter. He was the denier. And some were more than faithful when Peter found himself running. You got Judas the betrayer. You even have a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Anybody know who he is? Do you remember who he was? He was the man who, after Jesus died, he went to the authorities and asked for the body. He had a tomb. Not very many people had a tomb. Joseph was a wealthy man. But when John, who writes the gospel, John the Beloved, when he writes about Joseph of Arimathea, he calls him a secret disciple. Did you even know that there could be such a thing? As a, doesn't that sound like the opposite of? I mean, it seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it? You could be a disciple but be secret. Well, Simon the Zealot would say that doesn't count. That didn't count at all. When you look at the followers of Jesus, it feels like, it's not just true then, but it's true today, that Jesus goes out of his way to invite people who are very different from each other. That was the first observation. The second one is this one. As followers of Jesus, we are all headed in the what? Same direction. Let's try this last one with a little more, okay? So as of Jesus, we're all headed in the same direction toward the... You guys follow instructions so well. Did you feel the energy in the room go up just a little bit? And so this is true. We're all headed in the same direction, the same destination. When Jesus says to Peter, follow me, it wasn't a, a theoretical idea or invitation. He's saying, look, I, I'm going over there and I want you to follow me. And of course, it was a rabbinical, a, a rabbi's invitation as well. I want you to come with me. I want you to become a part of the group of people that will learn how I think and what I believe about God and who I am. And I want you to be a part of that group as well. But literally, you're going to have to follow me. What they would say in the first, second century, that they were people that walked in the dust of their rabbi. You know what that means, right? It makes sense. I mean, you walked on dusty roads, sandals, you know. When Donna and I hike, I walk in the dust of Donna. That's what happens. Because <laughs> usually I'm following her, and she has, has a tendency to not pick up her feet. And so that, that's what will happen. There will be this little pig pen cloud of dust right behind her. And when we get done, you know, from the, I don't know, about here down, I'm, I'm dusty, and she's not because I've been walking behind. This is what was called what it meant, how it was described in the first century. You follow the rabbi. You walk in his dust. You're covered in his dust. And so when Jesus said, well, we're going to Galilee, they said, all right, they got in line, followed him. Jesus said, we're going to Bethany. The disciples said, what was the invitation? We got to follow him. I guess we're going. Near the end of his ministry, when Jesus said, we're going to Jerusalem, Thomas said, well, let's go to Jerusalem too. We might die with him. This is what it meant to follow Jesus. And the invitation that Jesus gives to us is the exact same one. You need to believe what I believe? No, no, no. You need to go to the same church? Right? No, 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 that's not it. You need to, no, you don't need to do anything. What do we need to do? You need to follow. Follow who? Jesus. It means when he takes a step, we take a step. When he goes north, we go north. When he takes a left, we take a left. We just get in step and follow him. 
Where are we going? I don't know. When are we going to get there? I have no idea. What do we do? Where's the map? Nope. You just follow Jesus. It's what they were asked to do. And it's the same invitation that Jesus gives to us to be more like him. This is what it means to be a, a little Christ, a Christian is what that means. There's lots of scriptures that describe it well. You know, Romans talks about being conformed to his image. We can read about the fruit of the spirit that are supposed to grow in us as we mature or know Jesus longer or maybe follow in his steps down the path. There's no scripture that describes it, I don't think, as picturesquely, as, as clearly as this scripture in 1 John. 1 John 4, 17. As we live in God, say it with me, our love grows more perfect. You, this is what you want, isn't it? I, I do. I mean, when I fall short, when I find myself being maybe rude or impatient or judgmental or uh, in some way very not Christ-like, it's always because my love is less than perfect and it's showed up in a moment when what I should have given is not what I should have given. I should have given patience or kindness or peace or gentleness and I gave, I gave some selfishness on my part. Our selfishness has a thousand faces, doesn't it? It shows up in numerous ways. But the scripture says that over time, as we live in God, our, our love grows more perfect. It's what it means to follow Jesus. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment. Don't be mistaken. There's going to be a day of judgment for everybody, followers of Jesus and those who don't. But we can face him with confidence. Why? And then I love the phrase in the NLT. Lots of ways to translate this, but I love that this is translated because we live like Jesus here in this world. I mean, if our culture needs anything right now, it's that. If there's any solution to what is ailing us or what's creating disunity or division or hatred or aggressiveness or rampant anger that has no fruit at all, then it's because those of us who know Jesus well are not doing that, living like him in this world. And I find myself falling short. And I want, this is what I want. And so if this is what it means to follow him and what this looks like, then it's true. We're all headed in the same direction and we've all got the same destination. And that's true of me and you and your Episcopalian neighbor and your Catholic friend and everybody else that is maybe of a completely different brand of Christianity but knows and loves Jesus and is headed in the same direction, same destination. That's our hope. That's our desire. And so that's true as well. However, a third observation was this. Each person begins their walk from a unique place. Now, this one you're going to have to sit with for a moment just to grasp the importance and maybe even the, the way this applies. We know it's true that we all start from different places. This was true for all the disciples too. I mean, I can't imagine the household that Judas grew up in, but I'm probably, it was a household where he was convinced and absolutely certain that God was going to act in a very specific way when God's kingdom came. He was taught this. He believed it. This is what he expected. Matthew's was different. Mary Magdalene's was incredibly different. You could even put some names and labels to the values that she was taught growing up. We all begin in a unique place. 
This is true for you too. Do you remember, some of you in the room won't remember this because you're not old enough, but some of you are old enough. I can tell just by looking. Um, Do you remember when we had to ask for directions? Some of you remember that. You didn't have to raise your hand, but I appreciate that. That's very (laughs) confessional of you. Do you remember when you had to ask for directions? And if you can remember that, then you'll remember this. There was a question that usually came right after that when you said, well, how do I get there? They would ask this question. And it was a critical question because they didn't know how to answer it unless they asked this question. They would ask, where are you coming from? Are you coming from work? Are you coming from home? Are you coming from the south? Are you coming from the north? Where are you coming from? Because this is so fundamental and so elementary, but we miss this. Each person begins their walk, their journey, their deal with God, their, their path from a unique place. And even though we're headed same direction, the same destination, each one of us comes from a very unique place. And if we don't begin directions with an understanding of where someone is coming from, then we could get it completely backwards, couldn't we? And we do. This one idea alone could describe how deep and fractured our culture is. And it does. I tell you how to come to my house. And I want to know where you're coming from. We'll pretend you didn't have a Garmin 10 years ago or you don't have an iPhone today. And if that's the case, I would say, well, you know, if you're coming south, you've got to take a right to get to my house. You've got to turn right. So that's what you're going to do. You're going to turn right. If you come from the north, come from the north, well, you need to turn left. And the directions are completely opposite, aren't they? And come from the east and the west. Now, some of you don't have a sense of direction. So you say, I need to know right and left. I need, you know, some of you don't know your right from your left. And so you need to know where the McDonald's is and where to get there from there. And so we, we have landmarks, we have directions, we have all kinds of ways to say and answer this question. Where are you starting from? And without an understanding of that, we don't even begin to know how to answer the very next question. How do we get there? And so what does that mean? If it's true that each person begins their walk from a unique place, what does that even begin to mean? It means my journey is different than yours. It's very different. My hurdles are different than yours. My direction is different than yours. I mean, generally, we're following Jesus, but I might be going south and you might be going north. Here's what it means. Some of you are on a four-lane highway. Some of you are on an eight-lane superhighway. And some of us are on a two-lane country back road because we can't go as fast as you. That's what it means. And it all starts with where did you begin? Some of you started on the first rung of the ladder. Some of you are halfway up the ladder before it even gets leaned against the wall. If we understood this one very simple idea, then it would change our approach to everyone we encounter. Our first question would be, where are you coming from? Now, how sacred is that question? And how sacred is that conversation because it's different for me, it's different for you, and I don't know if I can trust you yet, and we'll 
talk about it as we can. But what have I done usually? I've already jumped to the directions about how to get where we're going, and I don't even know what you're driving, let alone what road you're on or where you've started. And that alone in our culture could change how we love. Talk about love growing more perfect. If my start place is different, my journey is different. It's true for you and it's true for me. And so these observations, if you put them together, let's put them all on the same same graphic here. This is what they are. Jesus, it seems that he just goes out of his way to invite people who are very different from each other. Not only that, followers of Jesus then and now, everyone who's ever said yes to that invitation to follow Jesus, we're all headed in the same direction generally, and we're all headed toward the same destination. But the unique thing is, is not only are we different from each other, but we've all started from a very unique place. Now, if we understand all three of these together, then maybe we would approach our divided culture very differently. And if we did, then we would understand that that when Jesus does this, when he invites people who are very different from each other, that he probably did this on purpose. If he wanted to invite people who were all the same, all he had to do was just go to one place because they were already separated. I mean, the Pharisees were hanging out, the sinners were hanging out. The people who were rich all went to the same places in the same bars and the same synagogues and the same street corners and the people who were poor, well, they lived on the same streets and the same back alleys. If Jesus wanted all of them to be the same, then he could have done that much easier than inviting people who were so different from different places, who believed different things, who had different ideologies, who voted for different people, who had different ethics, had different values, but that's exactly what he did. He found them all different and he put them in the same group, the same commune. They traveled together, lived together, listened to the same teaching for three straight years. Not only that, if that's true, then we know that this has always been true, but we haven't really thought much about it, that each person begins from their own unique place. Now, stop and think about it. If this was true in first century Middle Eastern Judea, how much more true is it today? I mean, even true for the disciples, and it's obvious they came from very different backgrounds, very different walks of life. If that was true then, today we live in a multicultural world, a global society. Now, just imagine, just imagine for a moment that if both of these things are true and Jesus came today for the first time and began to select followers and extend invitations for people to become disciples, learners, followers of him, how would that group look? Who would he invite? Can you imagine? I mean, take whatever you're thinking and then double it in terms of scope and difference and you're probably getting somewhere close to the group of people that Jesus would invite to follow him. That's amazing, isn't it? Now, if both of these are true, and we understand that this is absolutely true, and all three of these work together, all three of these things impact each other, then we end up with a group of people or a society, or a culture that is wrought with tension, don't we? 
I mean, the tension is thick. I mean, not only are we different, we came from different places, we started in different places, but we're on the same road in the same direction, trying to head down the same place to get to the same destination, and the tension there is incredibly difficult. Donna and I were on this trip a couple weeks ago. I'm sure some stories will emerge from it in a sermon here or there. But as we go, we had to change our plans often. And you know what it's like to figure out with a family what it's like to change plans. This is just Donna and I trying to figure out how to change plans. We're not even sure now of our direction or our destination. Weather was coming in. It was going to snow. We had to change up everything from our trip and deal with what we would call, you know, real strong disappointment that we're not going to do some of the things that we thought we would. And so you can begin to feel the tension because in a very small microcosm, these three things are true. Culturally speaking, these three things are true. So if Jesus went after people who are very different, he knows we're unique, but he's asking us to walk the same direction or destination. Well, that's why the tension in the culture is thick. That's why the tension in the church is thick. That's why you can visit 12 different churches in Castle Rock and hear 12 different messages about how to approach the issues that we're facing culturally in regards to the pandemic and how to live them out in your faith because the tension is that thick. And our hope, our goal, as we live this out and as we go through what we would call tension fatigue right now is to take as much tension as we can and eliminate it all. And so we take issues and we bury them. We take our convictions and we set them aside. We do lots of different things to try to eliminate the tension. But it seems like Jesus' approach, it seems like what Jesus wants us to do more than anything else is not eliminate the tension that this causes, but to embrace the tension that it causes. I know, that's hard. You don't hear that now after two years of this. And I know it creates all kinds of conflict and stress in our life. But Jesus wants us to embrace the tension because for some reason he thought it was important that we journey with people who are very different from us and begin their walk in a very unique place separate from us. And so the people that were very different And the people that came from a very unique place, Jesus says to these people, come and follow me. And I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. This is Matthew 4. And in just a few verses, a little bit later, begins a new chapter and probably the most famous section of the gospels, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We know them today. They weren't called this then, but because Jesus went up on a little hill and began to teach, we know them as the Sermon on the Mount. And as Jesus began, chapter 5, verse 1, it says this. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. It's the longest section of Scripture that you have, apart from one section in John that's right before Jesus dies that is comprised of red letters, the words of Jesus. In other words, Jesus is going to take a few moments, probably about 15 minutes if you read it from start to finish, shorter than my sermon I'm giving you today. That makes me think a bit. 
and Jesus is going to give bones and flesh and texture and, and a map for what it means to follow him. And he's going to do so in such agonizingly difficult, crucial, specific ways that all of Christendom in the centuries that followed would find them tenets and truths and principles that are almost impossible, in some cases very impossible, to live by. And what does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, that's what people who are in community and decide to walk and work together and to follow Jesus together, it's what they sort out as they live their lives. It's what you as a part of the Castle Oaks community here in this room and those online have decided to identify yourself with the body and sort that out together. What does it mean for you to do this at work and with your family? And what we're inviting you to do over the next several weeks is to engage with us and engage with each other, not just people of our church, but people who are in your circles around the content, the words and the teachings and the tenets in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And we'll go through it together, but what we do here in this room is just a, a sliver of what we hope begins to get unearthed in your own heart, in your own mind, as God tries to take us to a place where our love grows more perfect and we live like Jesus in this world. And so we would love for you to do that. This is what that means. It means that you will kind of engage and read along with us. You'll read sections that we talk about on a given Sunday, a given service. And then we'll give you each week a few questions that you, coffee with your friends or lunch or dinner with the people that you have engagement with in your small group or study group can begin to pick apart what it means to not move away from the tension, but to embrace it. Apparently, Jesus believed it was really important for you, for your love to grow more perfect, that you not eliminate this tension from your life, but that you would embrace it deeply. And so we're going to give you a chance to do that. And what it does is it takes the main thing, it keeps it first and foremost, love, what it means to follow him, and all the other issues begin to settle behind it. And if our culture could move to a place where that were true, not just of people who believe this or believe that, but all of us who are struggling to find our footing right now, then so much would be different. So we'll give you a question today that will help you get started this week. I know you haven't read any of the Sermon on the Mount for this week, but you could change that this afternoon. But here's the question that you can wrestle with as a couple, family, group, doesn't matter. What bias are you likely to bring to Scripture? Could be any one of these things. You could even add to the list. What bias are you likely to bring to Scripture? The reason this matters is because you're about to read Scripture for the first time. And most of us have the idea, well, I just want to read the Bible. But we forget that we bring with our understanding of the Bible a whole big pile of where you were raised, how you were taught, what your values are, what your ethics are, when you began to walk with God, what, you, what your view of the church is, what you think about scripture. All of these things are a part of who you are. And so it's not just what it says, it's what you think it says or how your mind and heart read it. And if you find yourself this week wrestling with this question and you think, you know, I, I've, I've really come to the conclusion I don't have a bias, all that means is, is you don't know your bias and it just will sneak up on you when you less, like, like when you do not expect it. 
And so here's another way to ask the question, what bias? What about how you see the world gets in the way of you understanding the words of Jesus and taking them at face value? There's something that's in the way. What bias? And if you aren't sure, what does he mean by bias? Well, then this might give you some clue. What, what deeply held ideology or perspective or opinion do you have that you wear like glasses that you need to read that impact the way you see the words of Jesus? And see if you can name it. And what's fun, of course, is that you do this with people that you trust that you're journeying with and name it with them. Let them name theirs. Ask questions. Eh, don't do it. This is, all this means, that this is why Jesus said do not judge because the things that we judge each other about are of no consequence at all. Jesus wants you to know him for your love to grow more perfect and for you to live like Jesus in this world. And so this will happen when you read scripture. You'll read scripture and you have a, a political bias or an economic bias. I mean, some of you read scripture and you think, well, I, I know Jesus was a Republican. It's clear. I mean, he, he wanted to be, he was, he was a capitalist Republican. He wasn't just a Republican. I mean, read the parables of Jesus and it's absolutely obvious capitalist thinking was a part of who he was. And some of you read the scriptures and think, oh, that's the silliest thing I've ever heard. Of course he was a socialist. I mean, he just gave fish to anyone who wanted it. He didn't even ask for proof of working or he didn't want to see their visa and, and all, the, all the while the disciples are saying follow me and they say yes we'll go well, where are we going don't know when do we get there should we bring our masks should we get vaccinated what does this mean how should we follow and Jesus says just follow me in Matthew 5 6 and 7 he says here's the map you're the destinations. This is what it looks like. And so the question that you ought to ask this week and discuss with somebody whose faith you know something about is what bias are you likely to bring to Scripture? Wrestle with this at least a little, and then you can begin to read the words of Jesus maybe with fresh eyes. And when you do, you'll be surprised what you see. Why? Because we want to all think the same. No, no, no. Listen close. Conformity is the enemy of unity. Did you hear me? It's not important that we all think alike. Conformity, doing things the same, thinking the same, that's the enemy of what it means to move forward together. It's the enemy of unity. Unity means that you and I have placed love at the top and everything else we believe is secondary. We can sort it out. That doesn't mean you don't have deeply held political views. Of course you do, and you should. It matters. But it does mean that you've placed who Jesus is and what it means to have your love grow more perfect ahead of all of those things. That's not conformity at all. The world wants conformity. They want to take all of the tension away. Jesus says, embrace the tension and the differences because apparently you need to be in the same room with somebody who thinks differently than you. Otherwise, you will be convinced even more so than you are right now that you are right about everything. And that is a dangerous place to be. 
And so this is what we want. We wrestle and we engage and we discuss and we grow. Why? One reason only. For our love to grow more perfect. Because we live like Jesus here in this world. Let me guide you through a prayer. Lord, we come to you today here in this room and a church dispersed online. And we ask that you would give us the courage to engage, to allow scripture to teach us, to allow perspectives of other people to challenge us. Lord, honestly, last thing, the last thing we want to do right now is embrace tension. But if we're going to go in the same direction, the same destination as Jesus, then, well, for some reason, Lord, your son thought it was important that we be around people who are very different than us. I suppose it will teach us humility and surrender. I suppose it will teach us that maybe we don't have all the right answers or that there is another way to approach an issue or problem. Even though we're absolutely convinced we're right, Lord, would you give us the humility to come to you open-handedly and surrender? Lord, we'll encounter a variety of people this week. May we at least remember that they all come from a very unique starting place. And that we can learn something from every person you've created. So, Lord, may our love grow more perfect this week. And, Lord, we as a church body, as we engage together, as we have discussions, as we allow your spirit to guide us and lead us, we ask that you would build within us a living hope that can extend beyond our circumstances, knowing and believing that you are present in this world, that your kingdom is being built, that you are active in our hearts, that you are helping us to become more like Jesus every day. And this living hope that we cling to guides us. This is what we want, Lord, and this is our prayer.